And I'm so grateful that we can bring these things to you and rest in you and trust in you. But God, as we encounter your presence this morning, there may be things that you bring to mind, things that we've done against you or others, things that you call sin in our lives. And so God, we want to take a couple of moments now and just offer up our sins to you in confession. So let us all confess together now. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for us, for taking my sin, for taking our sins upon yourself. Thank you that if we come to you, you tell us you are faithful and just, that if we confess our sins to you, you will forgive us and purify us and make us righteous. This is an amazing thing, God, that you have done for us. So thank you for that. Thank you for pouring out your mercy and your grace upon us this morning, that you found us right where we are, and God, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you'd make us like you want us to be, that we would be open to your word now and that you would speak to us clearly. Thank you, God. We give you this time. We lift up Jim to you now as he speaks to us. May you be glorified. May you speak to us. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Who was that guy? Well, I'm Jim Barclay. Uh, I'm an elder here at Harvest. Been here four and a half years as an elder and uh, as a member for 20-some mm, years. I'm filling in for Pastor Matt Garino, who's on sabbatical for the summer. He'll return first part of June. Well, I can be forgiven for making that mistake. You see, um, if you remember, if you were last, here last um, week, well, this worked for Roger. Roger, who brought the message last week, he started off with a faux pas, just to get it out of the way early. So, but there's also another reason why I did that. It wasn't exactly intentional. I see my mother right here in the third row. <laughs> the, that's a surprise. I didn't know she was coming. She usually worships at Sunset Presbyterian, and so <laughs> there she is. I was taken aback. Back from September when Matt is to return to June when he's already gone. <clears throat> well, let's see if we can get back on track here quickly. Um, <laughs> I have to acknowledge, too, uh, that... I'm aware of the, uh, the news from this last week from Falcon Point and Baton Rouge and Dallas and um, before that, Orlando. And so we're in a time of um, deep mourning and concern over uh, what's going on in our nation. This message, it's about forgiveness, as you can see. And it couldn't be a more appropriate message for the time. The message topic was selected over three months ago. But still, it's most appropriate. So the title uh, for the day's message, Christians Forgiven and Forgiving. And our passage is the unforgiving, 
uh, servant, which is uh, a parable, the unforgiven servant. Uh, Matthew 18, chapter, or verses 21 through 35. We'll see in this parable um, that there's a forgiving master who expects his servants to imitate him. Um, we'll find this uh, passage in your pew Bible on uh, page uh, 695. Chapter 18 in Matthew is the fourth of five discourses that Matthew records. These are lengthy uh, discussions that Jesus, where Jesus teaches on a variety of subjects. And in this fourth discourse, Jesus is teaching about the church uh, and its authority uh, or his, and, and the authority of the church, which we'll see as we go through here. So let's turn now to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, and I will read. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. He released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and they told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This is the word of God. So let's look at the context of this particular parable. 
At the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus' disciples come to him with a question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' reply begins a series of teachings concerning various aspects of the kingdom, including who is the greatest. In verses 15 through 20, uh, it teaches how to deal with a sinning brother, and this includes exercising the authority of the church. The goal here is to re re maintain and restore relationships within the church. This passage then sets the stage for the parable of the unforgiving servant, in which we see a continuation of the theme of reconciliation and restored relationships. But here the focus is on the imperative of forgiveness in the life of the Christian and on the part of the injured party. So let's take a look at how the parable unfolds. In verses 21 through 22, how then should I, how often should I forgive? Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Well, these two verses aren't part of the parable, but they explain what prompted Jesus to tell the parable. It seems as if Peter has been thinking about the lesson on dealing with the sinning brother, and he's developed the question, how often? He may be thinking he's being generous by suggesting seven times because the rabbis at the time taught that the given number, the standard, was three times of forgiveness. So Peter doubles that standard and adds one. He's headed in the right direction, but he's still off the mark. If you were here last week and you heard the message that Roger delivered on the parable of the Good Sermon, or the Good Samaritan, um, you may suspect that this question has behind it a similar motivation uh, to the question that the lawyer posed to Jesus about who was his neighbor. In that case, it seemed that the lawyer was seeking to minimize the size of the group that he was uh, to love. But uh, through the story, Jesus shows him that there is essentially no limit uh, to those that you're called to love. And Jesus gives a similar answer here to Peter's question. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, or through 490 times if you're a little slow on your multiplication. The implication of the number 490 is that there's no limit to the number of times forgiveness is to be offered. Other than the number of times that you're offended. One commentator suggests that Jesus isn't saying that we should keep records, of course. Um, who could keep track of that many instances of forgiveness in the first place? That's uh, 543 and it's, uh, now it's um, 612. No. Uh, it's not 490. The point is, um, it's a lesson about, it's not a lesson about math, it's a lesson about grace. So Jesus then elaborates with the parable, which begins uh, with verse 23 and goes through 26. Uh, beginnings with a description of a colossal debt. 
Jesus launches into the story, the first part of which illustrates the forgiveness in the kingdom of heaven and how it should be done. The king discovers that one of his servants has run up a debt and it's come due, but he can't pay. It's no wonder he can't pay, it's astronomical. The precise value of the um, of, the, of the debt uh, is uncertain. It depends on whether the talent is composed of gold or silver and, uh, or, and how much it weighs. But just for instance, um, if it's gold and a talent weighs about 80 pounds, uh, then the total weight equals 800,000 pounds or 12,800,000 ounces. You see where I'm going. Uh, the price of gold, which is measured by the ounce, has recently ranged from $1,000 to $1,300 per ounce. And at $1,000 an ounce, the value of this debt in today's dollars is 12 million. No, you're going to correct me. I know. It's 12 trillion, 800,000 uh, $800 million, $12.8 trillion, it's easier to say it that way, huge amount. So this raises some questions, I know, I know, like um, how could a servant incur such a monstrous debt? But that isn't really the point here. There are some interesting theories I read in the commentary, but uh, it takes too long to elaborate on them. Uh, remember that this is a parable, it's an analogy, it's not supposed to be uh, examined in every point. It teaches a central lesson uh, to us. So let's keep our idea, or our focus on the lesson. The significance of the dollar amount is that it's so large that it's way beyond the servant's ability to pay. And because the servant can't pay, the king orders that he and his family and all that he owns be sold. And that means slavery. Because if it's to be uh, imprisonment until he can pay it off, uh, there's no way that in any reasonable amount of time uh, that will happen. The servant begs the master to have patience, promising to pay off the debt. Pay it off. Is he deluded? Well, maybe he's just hoping to buy some time until the king dies or something. It's tempting to compare, though, the state of the servant's mind with so much of mankind thinking and hoping that they can actually pay the sin debt to a holy God. But then, in verse 27, we get a picture of forgiveness. And here is, in my view, the summit of the story. In the actions of the master, we get a picture of what forgiveness looks like. We see that the, ma that the master takes three steps in the process. The verse reads, Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. So he was moved with compassion, released the servant, and forgave the debt. These are the three essential elements of forgiveness. Compassion, release, and canceling the debt. First, the motivating factor. Moved with compassion. This is a very important 
concept in the Bible. To have um, compassion or to have pity, they're the same thing, but the term literally means to suffer together, to suffer together, and to actively take steps to alleviate the other person's suffering. It means, when it says together, to identify with the perpetrator of this wrong and his condition, and let yourself um, walk in his shoes, we say. Uh, to let your heart enter into his situation and realize that you have a lot in common with this person. Identification, then, is an essential step of humility. It overcomes our usual tendency to stay angry with a wrongdoer. We all tend to do that, don't we? At least to some extent. We want to hold them at arm's length. We want to see them as one-dimensional. This person is, has lied uh, about me. They're a liar. That's the one dimension. And as long as we can just look at them in that dimension only, it's easier to stay angry. It's a caricature of that, what that real person is and all of the uh, aspects of their lives and the complexity and the nuances. It makes them something less than human. That's what we do. Uh, in order to stay angry, and it enables, enables us to feel superior. We say to ourselves, we would never do that. I'm different. What it means to have compassion is to say, no, I'm not different. I'm capable of being the same way. It's been said that forgiveness fails when I exclude my enemy from the community of the human race and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. You've got to admit that you're capable of doing the same thing that's been done to you. You must identify or you'll be in the jail of your anger. The second step of the king's forgiveness is that he let the debtor go. He released him from the penalty of the unpaid debt and which was to have been sold into slavery. He was released from all the consequences. In the same way, we must be willing to, through our forgiveness, release the person from the penalty uh, that we might wish otherwise to make them keep on paying. Rather, they must be restored to their previous standing in the relationship between us with no strings attached. The third step, he forgave the debt. It was costly. Where did it go? Did it just disappear? This was a key element in the understanding of the story, the size of the debt. Now there's a definite deficit you see, in the king's treasury. It amounts to $12.8 trillion. That's money that he was counting on. He was relying on this 
servant to pay his bills, and now he's got his own bills to pay. It cost him to extend this forgiveness. It might have put his kingdom at risk. We need to appreciate this aspect of forgiveness and take it into account ourselves. Forgiveness means paying the debt rather than making the debtor pay. When there's a loss, someone pays. Either the one who caused the loss or the one who experiences the loss. It's one way or the other. There is a cost. Likewise, there's a cost when we forgive someone their debt to us, even when there's no money involved. It looks like this. When someone really wrongs us, there's a loss. Um, you've lost an opportunity, or you've lost reputation, or you've lost peace of mind, or you've lost sleep because of anxiety. In those cases, it is a real loss. There's a debt, and you feel that the person owes you. At that point, there are two choices. You can make them pay. You can try to hurt them. You can gossip about them. You can attack them and try to make them feel horrible. Or you can withdraw your friendship. Or at the very least, in your heart, you can wish that the, them to have a bad life. You can rejoice when anything wrong happens to them. And when they suffer, you kind of feel like you've made them pay. But there's an alternative. You pay. When you're tempted to gossip or attack or give the cold shoulder or wish trouble for the person, you refuse. When those thoughts and feelings come, you can refuse to nurture them. You identify with the wrongdoer and you remember the king's compassion, and you refuse. That way you cut off the food supply to the self-pity and to the self-righteousness and to the self-centeredness and to the anger. And little by little, you can grant forgiveness. You'll begin to feel forgiveness. But see, according to the Bible, you must grant forgiveness before you feel it. That's right, you've, you've got to grant it first. If you wait until you don't feel the anger or the bitterness, you'll never grant forgiveness. We see in Mark 11, verse 25, Jesus says, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It's an act of the will. Jesus doesn't say, wait till you feel like it. No, forgive when it comes to mind that you have something against someone and the feeling will follow. This is a good place to notice that forgiveness is not to be limited to our brothers and sisters in the church. It's true that this teaching in the parable is primarily directed to the church. But as the passage just quoted in Mark 11 uh, noted, forgiveness is to be extended to anyone that we have anything against. 
And remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Now it's clear that this subject is worth another sermon, but we don't have time to develop it here. But just remember that what we're taught about forgiveness that's to be done within the church must be practiced out in the world. God knows it's needed. That's what it means to cancel the debt. Yes, you suffer. It takes effort, sometimes tremendous, agonizing effort to offer a kind word when you want to get in someone's face or pass on an opportunity to slander the perpetrator or to revel in the news of a person's trouble. Denying yourself these things can hurt. Forgiveness is a form of suffering. Why? Because paying the debt, instead of making them pay, um, it's a result that will soften your heart and instead, instead of harden your heart, and you'll escape the prison. In verses 28 through 30, we see a portrait of ingratitude and hard-heartedness. The contrast with the king is breathtaking, isn't it? Having just been forgiven this astronomical debt uh, and spending a life sentence in slavery, this guy went looking for a fellow servant. And he demanded repayment of the debt. And it was much smaller debt than he'd been forgiven. But now, uh, after the other servant pleads for an extension, he throws him into prison. This may have been according to the custom of the king kingdom, and it may have been even um, legal, but it certainly was drastically different from what he had received at the hands of his master. What was he thinking? He should have been afraid, very afraid. A good leader expects his followers to do as he does. But this servant does the opposite. And in doing so, he demonstrates ingratitude and an unwillingness to follow his king's example. And by his actions, he's despised the generosity and the graciousness of the king. He was given mercy, but he demanded justice. Then in verses 31 through 34, we see the prison of unforgiveness. Sure enough, because the servant is not forgiving toward his debtor, as the master was toward him, the master declared him to be wicked, and he executed justice. He was required to bear the full burden of his debt, this servant, and he was delivered to the torturers. Some commentators view this as a, a sentence uh, to hell, to eternal punishment. And there's some justification for this, of course, because the idea of torture is certainly hellish, and also because of the size of the dead. It was so huge that the length of the sentence was essentially for a lifetime or representing eternity. Other commentators see the sentence to be the natural consequences of an unforgiving heart 
lasting as long as that heart condition continues. He's in the jail of his um, toxic heart. Either way, the consequences are dire. The prison of unforgiveness, isn't this where we are uh, when we're wronged and when someone owes us and we choose to cling to the hurt, stew in the bitterness, nurse the resentment, fester in anger. You feel the person owes you and you have the right to collect. You choose to hang on and nurture those thoughts and feelings, though, at the risk of remaining in prison, tortured by the hazardous waste of this unforgiving heart. To forgive is to set a prisoner free. And you will discover that the prisoner is you. So at this point, we're done with the story. But we come to verse 35. Why forgiveness is crucial. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. What's being taught here? Is this a works-based system that is because he's unforgiving, the servant suffers punishment? No, rather it's because of the condition of his heart. When your heart is closed to those in need of forgiveness, you've closed your heart to Jesus. There is a parallel passage in Matthew 25, verse 31, where Jesus speaks of his return and judgment of the world when he divides his sheep from the goats. The goats are condemned for their lack of compassion for the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the sick and the imprisoned. Jesus saying in effect that when you closed your heart to those in need, you closed your heart to me. Lack of forgiveness or persistent withholding of forgiveness is a sign that you've never really opened your heart to his grace. Such a pattern of life shows that you've never entered into the spirit or experience the sanctifying grace of the gospel. Here's why the heart inclined toward forgiveness is so crucial. There's no better indication of the true, indication, true condition of your heart before God or the direction of your eternal destiny than a, than a willingness to forgive or not. So there you have the parable and the lesson of the unforgiving servant. It's easy to listen to the story, but it's hard to bear the lesson that follows. So how do we do this? We're given some resources, and one is the church. Remember this parable is included with other teachings by Jesus, uh, in chapter 18, about the characteristics of the church. In this context, it's describing a characteristic that's to be found in the community of the church, and forgiveness benefits the health of the church, and the church supports its people in forgiving uh, through example and accountability and discipline. 
so we can keep our relationships within the church healthy. We see this in the passage immediately preceding the parable, these verses 15 through 17, and they describe how to deal with a sinning brother. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. This is a prescription for life in the church. How to deal with conflict. First, you go to the offending brother. Attempt to get him to see your side and then to repent and ask forgiveness. If that's unsuccessful, maybe you've not done such a good job. So you, do you walk away then? Write him off. I've taken my shot. Well, no. You're obligated to keep at it. You go find a friend or two. And you go take them with you to help you get that relationship straight. And if that fails, then you turn to the whole church, which has the authority ultimately, if the person is unrepentant, to turn them out. But the goal in each step, even including the excommunication, is restoration of the relationship. This teaching teaches about the sinner, the debtor, and the need for his repentance. Our parable, on the other hand, focuses on the injured party and the need for forgiveness. Both sides are needed for the restoration of the relationship. But there's another source, isn't there, brothers and sisters? Ultimately, what we need in order to extend forgiveness and avoid the prison of harbored anger and resentment is the compassion of the king. Remember in verse 27, we saw that compassion requires identifying with the wrongdoer and his human condition. Well, speaking of identifying, consider the supreme example of identifying with one's enemies that caused all of heaven to marvel in wonder. His description is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross. So Jesus uses this term to describe this king in the parable. He was moved with compassion. Why would he do that? because it points to the ultimate king. When you hear that you must identify with the one who wronged you and see yourself as no better than that perpetrator, 
and you wonder, how can I identify with this perpetrator, this person who hurt me, hurt me deeply? On the cross, Jesus identified with you. He had compassion for you. That was the ultimate example of compassion. On the cross, he became you and took the penalty of sin that was yours. Not only did that cross cost him his kingdom, it cost him his life. Now there's identification. When that servant is taking the other guy by the throat and demanding repayment or prison, what's so outrageous is not only that he's failing to imitate his king, he's putting himself in the place of the king who alone has the authority to judge in order to avoid going down that same path with one another, every Christian must be melted by the beauty of the king who became a servant. You must gaze on him and let his grace wash over you. The grace of identifying with you on the cross. The grace that canceled your debt that cost him so much on the cross, the grace that remembers your sin no more. Come often to the word of God. Meditate on it and let it soak into your bones. Pray the prayer of examination where you lay your heart open before God and let him show you the hidden, unwholesome places the need to be cleansed and practice, practice forgiveness, especially when you don't feel like forgiving. As we close, let's consider this example that captures well what we've been saying. Corrie Ten Boom was a young Dutch woman, a Christian, in the Netherlands, which was occupied by Nazi Germany during World War II. As the Holocaust progressed, as Jews were being rounded up and imprisoned in concentration camps, Corrie and her sister Betsy hid Jews from the Nazis. But eventually they were caught and sent to a concentration camp. In the concentration camp, Betsy died. Corey survived. And after the war, she became a Bible teacher and a speaker who went around Europe giving her testimony. She tells this story that happened just a few years after the war. At a church service in Munich, where I was speaking, I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the so-called shower room door at the processing center at Ravensbrück. With the other guards, who had often run his hands over naked bodies as they went by and responded callously to requests for help.
He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen, ever seen after the war, and suddenly it was all there again. The heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. And when he came up to me, as the church service was emptying, he said, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. To think, as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I simply prayed, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder and along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. She could never have done that if that was the first time she had ever tried to send her art out to someone, to identify with the perpetrator, to cancel the debt in the knowledge of the king who gave up his kingdom and became a servant, a servant for us to forgive our infinite debt. That was not the first time she had ever forgiven somebody. If it was, she could not have done it, but she did. She had practiced before. She did not feel like forgiving, just the opposite. But she did, as we all must. She called upon the grace of the king. While the worship team comes up, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are in troubled times. What can we do but turn to you and your grace? We know that forgiveness is an essential thing that must happen between conflicting parties. It's so difficult to obtain on our own. We have sung of your great grace. We pray that your grace find us. We have sung that it's enough for the whole wide world. It's our hope. It's our certain hope that that is true. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.